Let's jump right in. Today's text in James 5 is one of the many, many texts for believers to work through regarding riches. We're going to learn where riches cause people to sin and where riches cause people to be sinned against and how we should manage wealth in a godly way. So if you have a Bible, let's go to James chapter 5 and we'll be in the first six verses there. James 5, one more chapter to go. I think we got two more weeks left. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of our Lord. The first observation I had reading these first few verses in chapter five, where the first two words are the same two words in the previous section, verse 13 in chapter four says, come now. And as we mentioned last week, James is confronting the rich merchants in the church who are making definite plans and not entrusting those plans to God's will. Here in chapter five, He builds on this subject and he hones in on and specifically addresses the rich. Now, anytime pastors or churches speak about money, wealth, riches, people get nervous and often for good reason. Um, And frankly, I've witnessed a lot of bad teaching in the realm of finances from churches in the past. And it's always given me pause as a pastor to teach on money. And it's an area that uh, I've continued to work on. But since it's here in James 5, let's just go for it. If you read this text fast and you don't really dig into what's being said and what's going on, you can come away with some really faulty and harmful and kind of goofy theology regarding money. Uh, One being that if you have wealth and are rich, you're somehow a greater sinner than others. Now, there's many ways to address this text, but I'd like to highlight three aspects of the teaching here that have been so helpful for me, and I think they can be helpful to you. Um, The first is super subtle, and it's the scene and setting of a courtroom that's easy to miss. I missed this for such a long time, and it took me a while to see. I hope to show it to you. The second aspect is where the rich sinned in their wealth. Now, being rich isn't a sin. Honestly, if you have running water, internet, a smartphone. If you live in America, you are rich in relation to the global community. We're all filthy rich. The comparison game, consumerism, materialism, greed, envy, keeping up with the Joneses, all these things obscure the reality for most Americans, especially the working class and those who live paycheck to paycheck. They obscure people from seeing that they are rich and wealthy. Um, If you live paycheck to paycheck, you don't think you have any money and you honestly don't, but it doesn't do away with the global truth of how wealthy and affluent America is and how you and I are in comparison to the other parts of the world. The sin in James's church was not that they had wealth, 
It was how they gained their wealth. They gained it at the expense of others. And the other sin is how they spent their wealth. They terminated all of it on themselves, on luxury, on self-indulgence. And the third thing I want to outline is really outside of this text, but I feel like it's important to give some positive biblical examples of being rich and some positive examples of using wealth that God has given you in a holy and godly way. And at the end of the day, we have all been entrusted with various amounts of wealth, whether you see yourself as wealthy or not. The question is not, how much do you have? The question is, how'd you get it? Uh, who gave it to you? Do you see yourself as an owner or a steward? Do you see it as yours? And what do you do with the resources that God has given you to steward and manage for his glory? The, the question is not, are you rich? The question is, are you rich towards God, as Jesus would put it? All right, and so first, let's uh, look at the courtroom and the two charges these rich people were brought up on, um, getting rich at the expense of others and getting rich for themselves, for luxury and self-indulgence. If you jump to verse 6, you see this language there. It's very subtle, but it was, a, it was an actual thing that happened. Um, you see it say, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Notice how specific that is. This is so, so subtle, but James is referring to actual cases where the rich in this church have taken the poor, often their employees and laborers, they've taken them to court and they've condemned them and they've murdered them, right? They've condemned them. That's legal language that are guilty. Then they're executed, murdered. And then there's this phrase in here, he does not resist you. Uh, this phrase is there to show that these people are so poor, they have nothing and they don't even have weapons to fight with. They don't have a way to fight and they don't have means to hire an attorney. I learned this week that there are two golden rules. Uh, if you know Jesus, you're aware of the golden rule most people know about, the golden rule of the kingdom of heaven. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule in the kingdom. There's another golden rule. The golden rule in the world is he, usually it's a he, he who has the gold makes the rules. Think about that for a second. In verse 6, this is what James is talking about. He's speaking to actual situations where the rich had fixed the courts to literally not only condemn, but to kill their poor laborers. And that's the setting that would be in this church's mind, their memory, and their imagination. Now, if you rewind and look at verse 3, it says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Did you see it? Did you see the courtroom uh, hint there? Evidence. Their corroding currency will be evidence against them, or exhibit A, if you want to go with that analogy. If you play it forward to verse 4, it says, Behold the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Kept back by fraud. That's the charge and the crime. Uh, the, these, these employers, these rich employers, have actually stolen wages from the people making them rich. In other words, uh, the stolen wages are crying out or they are testifying or they are witnessing against the rich. The literary genius of James here is amazing. He took actual events of social and economic injustice, which was resulting in the oppressed 
actually dying. And he used those events as a setting and theme to write a public rebuke and admonishment to the rich people who were guilty. Using the language of evidence, fraud, and testimony towards rich and powerful people who could have thrown him in court and condemned him and murdered him. This, this text here is actually a courageous and bold prophetic text to people in this uh, church and also in our day today. Now, a lot of people get uncomfortable when churches um, talk about social or systemic or economic injustice. And, uh, and, and especially this summer, a lot of people have grown uncomfortable when churches and pastors have spoken up about, for example, racism in America and, and the injustice of, of, of murders that have happened. And, and, and I've spoken to, you know, the system's not broken. The system's working exactly how it was created by people who have the gold. Um, and some people have gotten really uncomfortable about churches um, uh, uh, talking about it. And even me bringing it up might be uncomfortable to you. But what I'd like for anyone who thinks that way is to see is here, right here, you have the brother of Jesus Christ taking an example in society where the rich have made the rules and fixed the courts and actually condemned and killed righteous people right here in verse 6. And, and, and James, with, with, with great courage, uh, confronts that. And it's Holy Scripture. What do you do with that? All right, aside from that, there is this subtle affirmation about the character of those who had been oppressed financially. It's, it's like easy for me to read this and to read about the rich and go, Ooh, those are some strong words, James. And, and, and then to think of like, well, but you know, in relation to the world, I'm rich and do I do this to people? And it's easy to get stuck there, but... Man, there is this almost a subversive, very subtle encouragement. And, and I want to show it to you. Um, he says in verse 4, The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Okay, hold on to that. James is praising those who are in trouble and praying. He's saying that th these people have prayed. They have cried to God. Their prayers and their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. W what a title. Not just the Lord, not just God. The Lord of hosts, which is a title given to the Lord when referring to him as the commander of angel armies. That literally, the cries and the prayers of these people who have been murdered um, uh, for economic gain, their prayers have heard, uh, their prayers have been heard and have reached the ears of the commander of angel armies. There's, there's a war hinted at here. And um, just as an aside, there's these two amazing things in this subtle affirmation. Uh, the first is fascinating. It's a hint and connection to the Exodus story where God's people who are, are Hebrew, they are the minority in the superpower of the day, Egypt. 
They're the slaves in labor force of Egypt. And they are crying out to the Lord. In Exodus 2, verse 23, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The next chapter of Exodus tells the story of God calling Moses to approach the system and to prophesy, confront, and demand that God's people be let go and set free. Ten plagues later, we have the Passover meal. We have the Exodus, or a word we would use today, the deportation of God's people from the oppressive government and economic superpower of Egypt. Now, that's the first thing, and there's so much there. And, and I know that what I just unpacked for you has some political, um, some political residue on that. And if you're politically astute, I've either encouraged you or I've triggered you. Um, and if I've triggered you, I'd just maybe suggest that perhaps that's a sign from your body and your nervous system that there is some deep work for you to do with the Lord on some of these deep historical issues that go way back to the very beginning. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing here, and this is even a rabbit trail, but it's awesome, is he says um, that these people have cried and prayed to God. Two verses later, he calls them righteous, okay, in verse six. And then later in verse 16, he says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And here it is. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you know the King James Version of this verse, it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Right? So the hidden message here inside the rebuke to the rich is, in times of trouble, the healthy person depends on God and cries out in prayer to him. They are righteous, their prayers work, they availeth much. That's kind of inside this open rebuke to the rich. It's pretty amazing what James is able to do here. Now, at this point, I think I've belabored the point. But just in case it's not clear, I want to show you just two Old Testament verses I found this week that show how serious God takes this sin. The first is in Deuteronomy 24. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners, read alien, foreigner, immigrant there, who are in your land within your towns. The second is Jeremiah 22. Woe to him who built his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. I could easily quote you Amos or Isaiah, uh, but the point is God's watching and God keeps very good records. And God is very interested in how employees, laborers, immigrants, and foreigners are treated. He's very interested. It is impossible to read the Holy Scriptures and come away with a different idea. I don't know what Bible you read. That's half of their sin, how they got rich. The second half is how they spent it. 
They terminated on themselves. They lived in luxury, in excessive waste, and they lived in, an, in a selfish, indulgent lifestyle. In Luke 12, Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. I mean, what a title, the rich fool. We don't have time to get into it, but I incur- highly encourage you to read this parable this week in Luke chapter 12. The, the executive summary is from Jesus, take care and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, something that the people in James 5 did not understand. Jesus then goes on and tells a parable about a farmer who has a bumper crop so much that he can't contain it. And so instead of blessing the community with the extra, he doesn't have a blessing mentality. He tears down the barns to build bigger ones. And it is a story of waste, a story of selfishness, a story of of indulgence. At the very end, God calls him a fool. I mean, when God calls you a fool, whew, God calls this person a fool and says that at the end of the day, his soul will be required of him. So, so, catch that. How this person, this parable that Jesus tells, how this person handled their wealth had an effect on their soul. What do you do with that? Paul charges his apprentice, uh, Timothy, young Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, verse uh, 17. He says, as for the rich... In the present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that, which is truly life. And what a verse to ponder. Now, how I'd like to close is I'd like to give you some positive biblical examples of the good rich people can do when they see themselves as stewards of God's blessings who store up treasures in heaven. Often, rich people are demonized in church settings. Sometimes they're catered to and seduced. But much of the time, rich people are kind of beat up on. Um, and again, I'm, when I say rich people, I'm not talking of like the millionaire or billionaire. I'm talking about us, you and me. We, just by nature of living in America and having running water, we are rich in comparison to the other parts of the world. And, and so sometimes um, what has been awful is, is pastors have, have, um, have beat up on rich, rich, rich people and have not taught that we're all rich. Uh, We have running water. We got a toilet that flushes. We are all rich in America, whether, regardless of where you are in the social realm, okay? So um, I think it's crucial to understand um, that that there's a godly side of, of wealth and of having resources and having more resources at the end of the month uh, that's not an evil thing. It's not a sinful thing. In fact, I, I know people who live paycheck to paycheck who are more greedy and materialistic than people who are well off. Uh, the amount of money is not what makes you um, um, content or consumeristic. Often money amplifies what's in there already. Okay, So for starters, Abraham, Joseph, Job, King David, Solomon, we're all very rich. 
right? They, there's, there's some examples there where they used their wealth to do good things. There's examples where they use their wealth to do bad things. But, but the Bible is full of people who are rich. In Jesus' ministry, we know of a rich woman who supported Jesus' ministry financially. Her name was Joanna, and she was the wife of the manager of Herod's household. In Acts, we learn of Lydia, a successful businesswoman, a business owner who sold purple linens. And we know that she cared uh, generously for the needs of Paul and Silas in their ministry. Right, uh, Luke. Uh, this is my favorite example. Luke was the private physician for the rich Roman officer Theophilus. Think about that. Theophilus was so rich he had his own doctor. No need for the Affordable Health Care Act. Theophilus owned his own doctor, right? And so Luke is the personal physician to Theophilus, right? So what happened was Theophilus heard about this uh, news of Jesus, and uh, but he worked for Caesar. And he was at this point of saying, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. But if he said Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord, it would have massive ramifications on his wealth, his family, his status, his privilege, his job, all that. And so he paid Luke a, a full-time salary for two years, plus his travel and expenses to go and investigate Jesus in the stir he created to see if, if it was real. Uh, and so when we read in the Bible, Luke and Acts, that's actually an investigation, an investigative report um, done for Theophilus so he would know whether Jesus was legit or not, okay? Now here's the result of this. The result is we have Luke's gospel um, in Acts. By word count, Luke is the single greatest contributor and writer of the New Testament. He's the only non-Jewish writer of the Bible, and because of that, there are 49 Greek words in Luke and Acts that don't appear anywhere else in the Bible. And so because Theo was a rich man who funded Luke to do this, we not only have two New Testament books of the Bible, but as a result, the scriptures are richer in their words and vocabulary and in their cultural heritage because of that. Think of the spiritual riches we have because of Theophilus's financial riches. Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 is where we find out about the birth of Christ and the details of uh, uh, from Mary and the manger scene and no room in the inn and the shepherds in the field and the shepherds hearing the choir of angels. I, you know, what would churches do around Christmas time with their kids and without this play that most churches put on? It's often hilarious on Christmas Eve. We wouldn't have that if it weren't for the resources of the rich man, Theophilus. Uh, Luke emphasized women, the poor, the sick, and the oppressed more than any yet the other three gospel writers. I mean, it was really a highlight of Luke's kind of attention to detail because he was a physician. Um, in Acts, we have the ascension of Jesus. We have Pentecost. We have um, the falling of the Holy Spirit in the upper room because of Luke's work. We have Peter's sermon. We have the story of Saul of Tarsus being transformed by Jesus on the road um, to, uh, the road to Emmaus, um, to, uh, in, not Emmaus, sorry, Damascus Road. I get the two confused. My bad, you fact checkers out there. We have uh, the, the story of Saul on the road to Damascus and that, that whole incredible turnaround of Saul into Paul becoming the greatest church planner. We have... Um, the, the planting of the church of Ephesus in Acts. We have um, so many things in the book of Acts because of this rich man, Theophilus. All right, so, so, so when people throw mud at people who are rich, and sometimes they deserve it, 
Uh, it's hard to do that and also appreciate the riches we have in the scripture because of Theophilus. Um, the last example I'll give you is Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who were rich, secret disciples of Jesus. And at the crucifixion, uh, what was common and what was practiced was after a crucified body died, it would get thrown away. It would get thrown into the trash, literally taken to the city dump where dogs would eat the body. And Joseph and Nicodemus did not want that to happen. So they used their privilege, and I know that's a triggering word, but they used their privilege to go to Pilate to ask um, for a favor to take Jesus' body and bury it instead of it being thrown away with the, body of the, of the, the bodies of the two thieves. And one of them, if I'm, I didn't look it up, but I, I think it was um, Nicodemus who brought the spices um, one of them brought the spices, uh, which would have cost a lot of money to, to, to bury a body. And then um, not every family had a tomb. Only wealthy families we know in the ancient world had family tombs. And so Joseph of Arimathea was a part of a wealthy family, and he borrowed, or he let Jesus borrow his tomb until they could um, do something else with his body. And, and, and probably the plan was to move it to Nazareth where his family was. So we even sing a song about this. I think it's Oh Praise the Name, where it talks about there, there he laid um, in Joseph's tomb. So we even sing a song about this rich man who lent his tomb to Jesus. And because of these two rich men, um, and I have to say the women who, who did the work and who were there and who really were there at the, at, at the crucifixion when the men fled, um, because of these rich people, we had the resurrection story. We had the stone rolling away. We have the, the account, the, the amazing accounts of, of, of Resurrection Sunday because of wealthy people who understood to leverage what God had given them for the good of the kingdom of heaven instead of storing up trinkets and toys and whatchamacallits and thingamabobs and, and any other kind of uh, funny word the Little Mermaid would, would create. These treasures help us today, and these treasures speak to us today on earth. And it's just fascinating to me that just, just those examples from Theophilus and Luke and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they leveraged their resource, their, their riches that were going to corrode. And 2,000 years later, you and I are feeding off of their um, there are treasures in heaven that have been stored up. It's amazing. Here is the gospel message in this, which is so crucial. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The gospel of Jesus is so simple. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't buy your way into eternal life. The only way into eternal life is to recognize that spiritually you ain't rich. You're actually poor. You are spiritually bankrupt. The, the, the Beatitudes call it being poor in spirit. 
Being poor in spirit is when you acknowledge that the true nature of your spiritual poverty and bankruptcy, the true nature is that you need Christ, and without Christ, you got nothing. And there's no amount of cash, there's no amount of, of, of trinkets, there's no amount of worldly wealth that is on this earth that you could earn or save or inherit that could even touch the spiritual bankruptcy you have. The only way to deal with your spiritual poverty is to trust in Christ. It is God who gives you the riches of his life and his kingdom, paradise, heaven, eternity, the new heavens, the new earth. They are gifts because of what he's done, not because of what you could pay, earn, or do anything. If you try to buy your way in, that is not the gospel. It is only by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is literally the gift of Jesus' life. For God so loved the world, he gave. He didn't hold on to the treasure of Jesus. He gave his life so that we might be saved and so that, in a way, we might be his treasures in heaven. So I ask you, what's in your heart? Is there anything in your heart that keeps you from literally being like God, a giver of wealth and resources for the benefit of others? Or are you trapped in the slavery of greed and consumerism? Have you bought the lie that more will bring contentment? It's such a lie. The fact that you need to upgrade iPhones should be a clue that doesn't work because you need to keep upgrading. Have you bought that lie? Are you, do you see uh, your finances as truly good and perfect gifts and provision from God? Are you living beneath your provision? Many Americans live beyond their provision. Are you living beneath contented the provision God has given you? And are you using the provision God's given you for the blessing of your family, yes, but also for the blessing of God's family, of other families, of the poor, of those who are in need, of the sick, of the elderly, of the, you fill in the blank, there's needs everywhere. For the record, our offerings are fine. We're in the black, God's taking care of us. Uh, by God's grace, your committed generosity, uh, we haven't had to lay anyone off during this pandemic, we haven't had to cut any ministries. Um, we're fine. Now, obviously, as every nonprofit, we'd use more and we could do more with more money. But at the end of the day, this isn't like a subtle sermon to get more money out of you. Um, I don't see who gives. I don't, I, don't, I don't see dollar signs when I look at you. It's very important to me that I pastor you from a pure heart and a, and a pure place. This isn't a money message motivated to get more out of you. There's not a building campaign around the corner. I don't think like that. I learned a long time ago that God is our source. And he doesn't ask me to recruit or fundraise or schmooze or seduce any of you for more money. I don't do that, never have, never will. This is a heart message. And I want to encourage you to notice where God is working in your life, where it pertains to consumerism, materialism, money, security, provision, riches, luxury, self-indulgence, even how you gain your income. Is it unethical or is it at the expense of others? Where's God speaking to you? I know this is tough. I know this is a heavy sermon. I know no one laughed at all during the sermon. 
but I charge you to join God in the work that he's doing. Notice where he's at work in your life when it comes to riches and wealth and your resources and your provision and how you spend money, how you give, how you invest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice where he's working and then just simply cooperate with the work he wants to do in your life. That's all he asks of you to do is to surrender and to cooperate. So Father, we recognize first and foremost every good and perfect gift is from you. Our breath, our health, our jobs, our skills, our callings, our provision. And Lord, we recognize that even though that paycheck may be written from an employer on this earth, we know at the end of the day that that is provision that comes from you. And Lord, those who are business owners, I pray, God, you would help them to understand the role that they have in this. But all of us, Lord, help us to see what true riches are, that being rich towards you is the goal, not being rich towards the Kardashians or towards the Joneses or towards any standard. That, God, you look down upon us who are spiritually poor and you call us into the inheritance of Christ that we might be rich in the heavenlies, that we might be rich spiritually, rich towards you, not because of anything we do, not because of compliance or attendance, not even because of giving, simply because you gave. I pray, God, you would uh, just apply this message exactly how it needs to be applied in each and every one of our lives. And Lord, if there's anything I've said that, that isn't from you, I pray you would just let that fall away. We love you and we bless you. And we pray, God, that you would continue to make all of us more like you. So that when we see a world hurting and broken, we don't shrink back and protect and defend, but we live open-handedly and we surrender and we give, even when it hurts. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Let's pray as our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.